chapter 23. I'm going to do this a little different this morning. We are about to celebrate communion, but I'm going to preach the first part of my message this morning. And I think you'll understand why. Luke chapter 23. We have just finished in our study the civil trial of our Lord. And Pilate has capitulated, he has given in, and he has given Jesus over, Luke says in verse 25, he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so as we pick up the account, we'll begin reading in verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Crucifixion is a horrible death. It's a horrible death. And this morning, I want you to understand the horror of the death of Jesus. Because when we celebrate communion, it's pretty sterile, isn't it? We got these nice, shiny silver plates, and we've got crackers that represent the body of our Lord. And we have these plastic cups of grape juice that represent his blood spilled. And we sit in this really pristine room. The Lord's death was anything but pristine. It was anything, it was anything but clean. It was anything that we would want to even observe. And so this morning as we begin, I want us to understand what really was happening there. After Christ was convicted, he would have been dragged to a place off to the, to the side of that courtyard there in the temple area and they would have had a large wooden beam that would have weighed 100 pounds, ready for him. Rough-hewn, rough-hewn wood, heavy beam, 100 pounds. And he would have been forced to pick up that beam. Luke records that there were, there were two criminals who were also being put to death at the same time. The three of them would have been taken, they would have been each given a beam, and they would have been given four soldiers that were assigned to them. The reason for four soldiers was they needed, they needed to have a little bit of distance, if you will, crowd control as they worked their way through the streets of Jerusalem. There would have been two in front of Jesus, two behind Jesus. Jesus would have been in the center carrying his cross or, the, or this piece, the cross piece of the cross. It was known that the Romans wanted crucifixion to be a horrible thing 
because they wanted to scare the people that, that they were ruling over into submission. And so that the route that they would have taken from where Jesus was convicted to where Jesus was put to death was not the shortest distance between two points. It would have been a winding way. It would have been a long way. It would have been a way that would have taken him through neighborhoods in Jerusalem so that the population of Jerusalem would see and would fear that it would happen to them. And so along the way, the Roman soldiers would make a spectacle of this thing. If the prisoner were to stumble and fall or drop the beam, he would receive a lashing from one of the soldiers of the four. So as to bring fear upon all the people. I want you to think for a second. And I want you just to stop, Christian especially in this room, I want you to stop and think with me. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, our Lord talks to his disciples and he says this. I want you to pick up a cross and I want you to follow me. Does that give this a little bit more meaning this morning? Jesus is not calling us to a life of ease, friend. He is calling us to a life of hardship. And if you don't like that, then you don't want to be a part of the Christian life. Any man or woman who would stand in a pulpit and tell you coming to Christ is the easiest, best thing you will ever do in your life, they're right on one account. It is the best thing you will ever do, but it is not the easiest thing. And I am sure that as John, who is the one disciple that we know was there, as he watched in horror Christ pick up this cross, these words are probably just ringing in his ears. He called me to pick up a cross and follow him. We know from what's happened in the religious and the civil trials that our Savior is in no shape to carry a cross. He has literally been eviscerated by the, by the Romans' cat of nine tails to the point that his back is nothing but ribbons of flesh, and he is bleeding profusely. His head is bleeding from the crown of thorns they put on him. And as he struggles to carry the cross, it becomes apparent that he can't do it, and so they compel, which is a nice Bible way of saying, they force Simon of Cyrene to come and pick up the cross and carry it for Jesus. And in the middle of all of this, Luke records this interesting tidbit. And, and we might wonder, what, what is Jesus doing here? Because in verse 27, it says there's, there's women who are mourning and lamenting him. We know that, that his mother is there. We know that his mother's friends are there. We know that probably other mothers, either mothers who have witnessed this happen to their own children who are fearing that it will happen to their children, there are mothers lining this whole way. And, and of course, the women are just taken up with emotion here. And in verse 28, he turns to them. Jesus turns to them. And, 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 I, and I have to just bring this to bear. Physically as a man, he doesn't have energy to carry the cross, much less hardly to walk this route. And in the middle of this, the Son of God turns to the women of Jerusalem and he gives them a gracious warning. Do you see the grace of our Savior even on the way to the cross here? Do you see it? 
And he says in verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And he's not saying this in a condemning way. He's saying this in a warning way. Weep for yourselves, for your children. Why? Because verse 29, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, the mountains fall on us into the hills, cover us. These were verses that they knew. This was Hosea chapter 10 and verse 8. These were prophetic words that Jesus is uttering, and he was, he was uttering a, a verse from the Old Testament that referenced the destruction of Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, by the Assyrians. This was what was written during those times. If we had time this morning, we'd go to Revelation chapter 6 because the words are eerily similar to what happens during the sixth seal judgment in Revelation, where the people on earth are saying, mountains fall on us, rocks crush us. This prophecy of Jesus has not been fully fulfilled. It's been partially fulfilled, fulfilled in A.D. 66 through 70 when the Romans totally crushed Jerusalem into submission. And many of those women probably did weep for their children in those days. But there is coming a day when it will be totally fulfilled when Christ himself returns and all wrongs will be righted. And notice what he says. He gives them a little proverb in verse 31. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's like, what, what does he mean here? What's he driving at? Well, is there anyone more alive than Christ himself? He, he is the green tree. He is the one who gives life. And he's saying this, if they will do this to me, what do you think they're going to do to you, you dried up people? And as they're winding their way through the streets, even Jesus' words at that point are words of grace. As he is in his final hours before he's going to die on the cross, he is uttering words of grace to the people, anyone who would hear. Luke records for us, beginning in verse 33, a very simple description. It says, they come to the place of the skull and they crucified him. Sounds really clean, doesn't it? Sounds just precise and, and, and just very quick and over. This morning, I don't want to be macabre, but I want you to understand what it means to be crucified. I want you to understand what it means before we partake of these elements to understand why we should have a greater heart of gratitude than we did when we came in here this morning. Will you let me do that? So after making this winding trip through Jerusalem, which is not a direct route to Golgotha, when they would get there, and it's a hill, and they have to climb this hill, when they get to the top of this hill, the prisoners literally, these prisoners who had been beaten within an inch of their life, are literally thrown on their back on the rocky ground. You ever gotten dirt in a wound? Do you know what that feels like? They're thrown on a ground, and then the cross piece is thrown down behind their head, and you, I'm sure that the Roman soldiers exercise no care. They literally grab that board, and they drag it under his back to get it to his shoulders. And once they have that board positioned, they stretch out those arms that have been so wounded already, 
and they take an iron spike that's five to seven inches long, and it's a half-inch square at its head, and they drive it through each one of his wrists. I don't know if you've ever had surgery on a, on a wrist or on an ankle or anything like that. I had ankle surgery years ago, and I still have nerve damage in the foot that I had that in because it's impossible to not hit a nerve. You ever had a nerve hit before? Can you imagine the pain just shooting up his arms into his back? And that's probably not even the worst of it because on either side of that cross beam is a rope and the Roman soldiers literally would hoist that cross beam into place on a pole that was already affixed in the ground. And once the cross piece was in place, they would take his legs and they would cross them and they would put one foot over top of the other and they would take another spike and drive it through his feet. Crucifixion is designed to suffocate a person to death. Literally, so that a person would drown in their own bodily fluids. And the only way that you can breathe is to force yourself up, which means that your whole body weight is pressed on that one nail that's going through your feet and you're pressing up on that. And I have to stop and pause and remind myself, he did that for me. He did that for me. The Bible records seven statements that Jesus said from the cross. Luke gives us three. And before we partake of communion, I want to look at the first one that Luke gives to us in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I, I guarantee you, if this is Dan Scarberry and I have the ability to speak while I'm nailed to that cross, the first thing coming out of my mind is I am condemning the mocking crowd. I am condemning them. If I'm the son of God, I'm damning their souls to hell. But I wouldn't be the son of God if I did that. There's no vengeance for the Roman soldiers who have just nailed him to that cross who most likely were part of the detachment that whipped him and flogged him. There, there's no condemnation for them. No, what there is, there is an intercessory prayer of forgiveness. Isaiah 53 and verse 12, you don't have to go there, I'll go there and read it. It says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. When did that happen? That happened right on the cross. That happened right on the cross. He is praying for the very ones who are putting him to death. Which tells me this, there is no sin that's so great that can't be forgiven, friend. If he would pray for forgiveness for the very ones who would put him, the Son of God, to death, would he not forgive you? Would he not forgive me? And here's the thing I know, when Jesus prays, it gets answered. And we're going to see after communion how this prayer gets answered even before his body is taken off the cross. And I have to ask myself, 
why God? Why would you do this? And my mind is drawn to Romans chapter 5. Join me in Romans chapter 5. I don't want to show of hands because everyone should answer yes to this. How many of you struggle with sin? How many of you feel pretty weak when it comes to dealing with sin? Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's hope, friend. There's hope. Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. And stop there and think about this. One would dare to die for a righteous person. We know what that's like because in our country, we honor those men and women who have sacrificed so that we can have freedoms, right? We would call those righteous deaths, would we not? And in those cases, some of those men and women have died horrible deaths, but none of them died a crucifixion death. Some of those men and women were tortured behind enemy lines and were treated terribly. But I dare say nothing like the Son of God faced for us. On top of what he faced physically, he faced the wrath of God for us. Keep reading verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that means that, that we have been brought into agreement with God. We've been reconciled to God. Things have been made right with God. Much more shall we be, sa by, be saved by him from the wrath of God. Do you understand what Jesus did on the cross guarantees if by faith we receive what he's done for us that we will never have to face the wrath of God? Do you understand that? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What Paul's saying here is, if God loves us enough that, that Christ would die for us and that he would reconcile us when, we're die, when, we, were, when we were dead in our sins, how much more is he just going to go ahead and make sure and make good on what he said and he's going to give us life? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so as we transition to partake of communion this morning, communion is for a certain group of people. And I want you to get this. It's not for the perfect ones. It's not for the sinless ones, or else we'd all be out. It's for the ones who are reconciled. It's for the ones who are reconciled. It's for the ones who are reconciled and are currently reconciled to God. And what keeps us from being reconciled to God? Is it anything he's done or is it something we've done? And so, there's nothing magical about communion. But there is something very meaningful about communion. It is a tangible reminder to us of what Luke just described for us. 
It's a tangible reminder of what Christ went through so that we who are reconciled might have life. And if that doesn't get your blood boiling, you've got a problem this morning. You probably need to go to the ER. So men who are helping me serve, I'd ask you to come forward and join me. So back in Luke chapter 23 now, Christ has just prayed this intercessory prayer. It's beginning at the middle of verse 34. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, as he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, or the Sanhedrin a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath day they rested, according to the commandment. There are certain groups of people I want us to focus in on now, or individuals. And the first is the mockers. I want you to see the mockers as Jesus is hanging here on the cross. And when it comes to Jesus and his cross, let's understand something. There will always be people who will mock Christ, especially a crucified Christ. In the middle of all of this mocking that's going on, the, the king of glory is dying for people just like them. He is dying for people just like them, people like me. He's praying for forgiveness for them. Verse 34, Luke tells us they cast lots for his garments. That fulfills a prophecy. And let's understand, the reason that there are garments to divide is our Lord is being publicly shamed. He's hanging naked on this cross. And I want you to understand that. 
He hung naked so that he might cover your shame and my shame. Isn't that an amazing thought? And as this king is hanging there, the crowd, the common people, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, and even his fellow sufferers are piling on. You see in verse 35 that there's a group of people who are standing and observing all this. The people stood by watching. The rulers, the religious rulers are scoffing him. Verse 36, the soldiers are mocking him. Verse 39, Luke says one of the criminals is railing on him. Other gospel accounts tell us this, that at the beginning both of them were railing on him. All of them are insulting and rejecting and mocking Christ. But then there's a man who has a change of heart. And Luke records it for us. Beginning in verse 40. One of the thieves rebukes the other thief. He was also, at the beginning, he was also mocking Christ. And saying the same things as the other thief. But he has a change of heart. And I want to ask you a question. Did anybody go up on the cross and witness to him? Did they invite him to VBS? Did he probably ever attend a church service? What changed his heart, church? It's what changed your heart. It's what changed my heart. It's the power of God. It's the Spirit of God working on this man's heart as he's hanging on a cross. And in verse 40, he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And, and here he admits his guilt, verse 41, we indeed justly, we deserve everything we're getting. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. Are you noticing a theme as Luke goes through this? The civil leaders declare Jesus innocent, and now one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus it says, this man's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And in verse 42, after he acknowledges his sin and he acknowledges the sinlessness of Christ, and in verse 42, he makes a humble plea. He pleads for forgiveness. He pleads for, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Lord, which acknowledges this. He saw Jesus as the Messiah because he clearly referenced kingdom. The only way you can explain this, friend, is the only way you can explain your salvation and I can explain mine. There's no aisle walking, not that aisle walking's bad. There's no Romans road here. There, there's, no, there's no evangelism explosion. What happens? God's Spirit brings this dead man to life. Just the same way he did with me when I was seven years old. And I want you to see, I want you to see what Jesus says to him. Truly, surely, most assuredly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. What a guarantee. What a guarantee. But the work that guarantees 
that statement isn't quite done yet, is it? The work that guarantees that statement isn't quite done, but I want you to see the power of Almighty God, the Son of God, as he hangs on this tree. He issues a statement to this man, you're going to be with me in paradise because I'm going to finish this job. And so Luke records that there's darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour. Jewish time, that would be from noon to three. When he says darkness, he means darkness. Inexplicable darkness. Not even an eclipse. And here's why I know that. It wasn't even an eclipse. Because Passover was always held at the time of full moon. And guess what? You can't, don't ask me the science of it. I just know it's true. You can't have an eclipse when there's a full moon. So there is no natural scientific explanation for this. This is a miraculous doing that God himself darkens the sun. And as we look at it, verse 45, the the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We sang about it a few minutes ago. Do you understand the significance of this? Matthew tells us it was torn from the top to the bottom. There's significance in that in too as well. Because here's what happened. That curtain is what separated man from God's presence in the temple. That curtain was a heavy veil, probably close to two feet thick of fabric that, that, that you did not violate and go beyond because if you did, you were in God's presence and you would surely die. And God himself from heaven reached down and split that thing in two because now the way is open to God because Christ is the way. The place where atonement was made yearly is not important anymore because Christ himself has made the perfect atonement. The lamb has been slain. We don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a holy of holies anymore. We can go directly to the holy of holies. And let's understand this. Let's understand this. Just like the Jews every year had to go and have their lamb slain to atone for their sins, and and their sin was symbolically placed by the priest on the lamb as it was slain, he would take his hand and put it on that that lamb, symbolizing their sin being put on him. Our sin, every evil thought, every, every wicked deed that we have ever done, every lie we've ever told, every sin we have ever committed and that we will commit in the future was placed on the Son of God and God poured out his wrath on him so that it wouldn't be poured on us. And it is during this time that Jesus experiences the horror of being separated from the Father. How do we know this? Because it's during this time that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke doesn't record it, but at the end of this time, our Savior cries out, paid in full, to tell us die. It is finished. But Luke does record these words in verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, and Luke records this carefully, a loud voice. 
people who are being crucified don't have loud voices. This is something that has never happened at a Roman crucifixion before. The person who is nailed to the cross is in full command of himself. He's in full command of his senses. He's in full command of his body. He has full voice, and he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, they haven't taken my life. I am about to present my life to you, Father. I'm laying down my life. What a powerful Savior. What a powerful Savior. And that act right there catches the attention of the Roman centurion. He's probably presided over these things before, and he has watched the slow, horrible death. He knows what to look for. He knows to watch for the labored breathing. He knows when to see the, the fluid starting to come out of the, of the convict's mouth. And he knows that a time is short. It didn't happen that way with Jesus. And when he breathes his last, notice what the centurion does in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. I guarantee you he had never attended a crucifixion where he felt like praising God. What's happened here? What's happened here? He has witnessed the power of Christ in action in his death. And this is the record of the first post-death of Christ conversion right here. The Roman centurion and most likely others, his soldiers, the gospel records for us, he says this, this man was the son of God. He, he acknowledges who, who Jesus really is. And when Jesus was praying on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, guess what? His prayer got answered in that Roman centurion. I want you to see how the crowds leave. Our time is so brief. But I want you to see how the crowds leave. Verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, and notice that's what they saw it as was a spectacle. It was, it was something to come watch. It was something to come feed their appetite. They, they longed to see Jesus die this way. It, it fed an urge in them. When they had seen what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. They were in anguish. They didn't know what to do with what they had seen. And isn't that true in the world we live in today? There's most of our people around us don't know what to do with the crucified Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. It troubles their soul. But I want you to see how the death of Jesus emboldens two men before we leave this morning. And, and this has been my prayer all week. It's for many of you who, who walk in the world and, and, and have been beat down and beat down by the world and, and you feel like you have no testimony in the world. All of a sudden, the death of Jesus changes. It's a game changer for two men here. One is listed here. The other one's not listed here. He's listed in another gospel account. But look at verse 50. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. This is an interesting guy to bring into the account now. We're almost to the end of Luke. Why haven't we seen Joseph before? We've seen him before, but he's never been named. He's been a part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the council. 
But Luke records this. He's a member of the council, a good and righteous man who did not consent to their decision. Now, if you remember, Luke told us it was a unanimous decision, so we can assume one of two things. Either he was not invited to the proceedings because they knew he would dissent, or two, he might have been out of town. I doubt that because it was Passover. Most likely he had not, he had, he had the testimony such that, that he would not even be invited to the proceeding. But he has been a quiet follower of Jesus. John records for us this, that not only him, but another man who we met in John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus, came also. He was the one who supplied all the spices for the burial of Jesus. But Joseph goes to Pilate. Joseph goes to Pilate. And I want to point this out to you. You don't go to Pilate without being noticed. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. This is key. Typically, when people were crucified, they were just thrown into a pit. The Romans had no respect and they wouldn't give convicts a decent burial. They threw them into a pit. Joseph has the boldness to go to Pilate, and Pilate has the decency to grant him the body of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself said that one day he would rise again from the grave. He didn't say he would rise again from an open pit. And Jesus' death moved Joseph to publicly acknowledge his devotion to Christ. And I want to tell you, friend, if the death of Jesus doesn't motivate you to publicly stand with Jesus, there's nothing that's going to. I, I can't force you to do it. I'm not going to try and beat you up and convince you that you should do it. I would just say to you, if you don't want to publicly confess Christ, then you need to take a hard look at the death of Jesus and understand what it is he did for you. In conclusion... The death of Jesus is a life-changing event. It's a life-altering circumstance. For the thief on the cross and for the Roman centurion, it, it brought them to faith in Christ. It brought them to faith in Christ. For the religious leaders, it left them in total fear and bewilderment. And for Joseph and Nicodemus, it emboldened them to publicly stand and testify that Jesus was their Lord. Someone wrote this, and we're just going to sing the words here in a second. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We typically sing that, and we're like, demands. No. We Get to serve and love this king who loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. Isn't that an awesome deal? It's an awesome deal. I would beg of you this morning, see his love, see it clearly, and respond to it. Worship team, come on up here. One song to sing, and then we'll be done for the morning.